Hey, this is a quick note to listeners before we begin. Today's show involves discussion about sexual assault. You know the hashtag, I believe women? It's become a pretty good example of how the exact same words can carry completely different meanings to different people. To the people who use it, I think I believe women just means that when a woman says that she's been sexually assaulted, let's stop doing that thing where we automatically disbelieve her by default. Are you sure you were sexually assaulted? Were you drunk? What were you wearing? That sort of thing. Let's not do that anymore. Instead, let's treat it the same way that we would treat any other crime. Like somebody says they were just robbed, a normal human person reaction would be, oh my God, that's awful. I'm so sorry. So let's start doing that for this kind of crime too. But to other people, I believe women meant the end of due process and the total collapse of the justice system, if not Western civilization itself. Really, you believe all women, all a woman's got to say is that guy raped me and we should just believe her and lock him up. I wish I were being reductive here, but that is actually how a lot of people interpret that phrase. Which brings us to the case of Stephen Galloway. Not a Galloway rape case, mind you. Stephen Galloway, the Canadian novelist who lost his job teaching at UBC after a former student accused him of sexual assault, has actually never been criminally charged. The sexual assault allegation has never been tested in court, and we're certainly not going to try to litigate it here. No, this is about the Galloway libel case, the allegations that he leveled against others. It's a case about what is happening to a bunch of people more than 20 of them, who said, I believe women, or similar things, when Galloway's former student came forward with her allegations. Galloway sued them all for defamation, for things that they tweeted, for things that they said in private conversations, for things that appeared in an art show, for things said in a review of that art show, for things they said seemingly in reference to Galloway, but sometimes without actually naming Stephen Galloway. Well, 12 of those people fought back, arguing in court that his lawsuit against them should be thrown out as a strategic lawsuit against public participation, a slap suit, a way to silence people who are talking about a matter of public interest, people who were simply trying to support somebody else. But to Stephen Galloway and his supporters, saying in this case that you believe women meant that you disbelieved him it meant that you were calling Stephen Galloway a rapist. And that, he says, is defamation. In December, a ruling came down, and most of those defendants were not successful in getting the suit thrown out. So, barring any successful appeals, they will face a full trial. The outcome of that trial could set a precedent. When we hit like on that Me Too tweet, when we share something like that, when we say... I'm so sorry that that happened to you. When we say, I believe women, are we breaking the law? Is a Canadian writer trying to chill free expression in Canada? Or is he simply defending his reputation against 
one of the most serious accusations that a person can make against another person. By the way, this is a conversation that might have taken place, in part, with Stephen Galloway himself, who denies the allegations of sexual assault completely. Galloway approached me some months ago. He was unhappy with our coverage of his case in the past, and he suggested that I interview him directly. I said, absolutely. And then he backed out. But before and after that email exchange, our reporter, Cherie Suturin, was digging deep into this complex case, and she brings her report in a moment. Wait for it. Charisse, why have you been spending so much time on the Galloway libel case? Well, part of it is because Canadian media has largely looked away. For a while, the Galloway case was all over the news, especially because big names in Canlet, like Margaret Atwood, Joseph Boyden, they'd come out in support of him. And then he filed the defamation case, which was also pretty newsworthy. But then we kind of stopped hearing about it. It's important that Canadians do understand it, though, because it has far-reaching implications. Particularly, it deals with how group behavior online is dealt with, what some people have taken to calling cancel culture. It also reveals how sexual assault allegations present a particular challenge for libel law, which wasn't originally written with those kinds of allegations in mind. David Watherspoon is a lawyer for one of the case's defendants, known only as AB because of a publication ban, And this is what he says about the case's significance. This particular case is, as far as I know, the most significant anti-slap case in the context of sexual assault. So I think it's one that will be closely watched. It's high profile. It has important legal issues. It's dealing with early legislation. So there's a whole number of uh, factors that, that make this an important case. But let's go back a little. I'll break down the basic timeline of events that led up to this defamation case. It basically started in 2015. And it didn't actually start with Stephen Galloway at all. It started with the allegations of sexual assault surfacing within UBC's history department with the PhD student there. And students were up in arms about it. They had started to organize, they were speaking out about it online, creating support networks for victims of these alleged perpetrators. The CBC's Fifth Estate released their investigation on it in November 2015. Tonight on the Fifth Estate. And after pulling my hair a couple times, he actually put me in a headlock. The University of British Columbia, where several women are sounding the alarm. They say there's a predator on campus. I was naked and wrapped in a sheet. Started crying because of what I thought had happened. What did you think had happened? That he'd raped me. And when the women asked the university to protect them, they were told to keep their stories to themselves. We can't have you guys tell It was the same month that report was released that a former student of Stephen Galloway, that's AB, she alleged that he had sexually harassed and assaulted her years earlier in 2011. AB initially said that there was a sexualized atmosphere underscored by drinking and suggestive conversations within the creative writing department. So A.B. went to a trusted professor with the allegation. And especially because of all the other attention being given to the topic at the time, the professor felt compelled to act. 
So alongside two others, this professor called an off-campus meeting within the creative writing department, minus Stephen Galloway, of course, where these allegations were discussed. And this meeting itself has been called defamatory by Galloway's legal team. They claim it helped spread the allegation around campus. But anyway, the faculty's meeting prompted the university to hire this retired judge, Mary Ellen Boyd, to conduct an independent investigation. In her extensive report, Boyd said that some information was not available, but that based on the evidence she had, she found that, quote, on a balance of probabilities, unquote, she was unable to find that an assault had occurred. However, Boyd found that the claims of sexual harassment were credible. So in 2016, Galloway was fired from his tenure position. And UBC was pretty vague on the exact reasons, but it said it was due to a record of misconduct and a breach of trust. I think at the time, most people thought that that was the end of the story. But two and a half years later, Galloway filed his defamation suit against AB and more than 20 other people, many of whom were students or professors, alleging that they had recklessly repeated AB's accusations in conversations and online. Many of them retaliated with an application to have the case thrown out as a slap suit. And it took a long time for the court to rule on which parts of the lawsuit could move ahead and what would be dismissed. But it was late last year when this decision was finally made. It was an extensive 242-page ruling that dealt with each tweet, each comment that Galloway and his team claimed had defamed him. And a lot of these expressions were not dismissed as a slap by the judge. So pending any possible appeals, the defamation case will probably go to a full trial. Okay, Sharice, I think that we should take a minute to go over what a slap suit is. Sure. And I can sit here and explain what a slap suit is. But in 2019, John Oliver did it way better in an episode of Last Week's Night. SLAP is an acronym that stands for Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation. These are frivolous suits with no legal merit, specifically designed to stifle public debate or dissent. And the whole point is to put the defendant through a difficult, painful experience. And even if cases fail in lower courts, as they often do, the plaintiffs can find ways to extend them through intensive discovery requests, depositions, and appeals that drain the target's time and resources. So while Oliver is talking about slap suits in an American context, the same type of lawsuits exist in Canada. And Canada actually has laws in some provinces in order to prevent slaps. BC, Ontario, and Quebec all have passed anti-slap legislation in the last few years. This makes it so that defendants have the opportunity to have a case dismissed if they can prove someone was trying to silence them for saying something important to the public. So that's what's being debated in the Galloway case. The applicants had to make the case of their expressions, tweets, words, and articles they used were being unjustly silenced. And did they prove that? Some did, and some didn't. It's interesting because the judge sort of conducts a mini-trial here. She didn't rule on whether or not Galloway was defamed. She ruled on whether he can make a good case that he was, or if he was just wasting everyone's time and trying to shut down critics. And in this case, the judge largely ruled that Galloway does have a case. Okay, so what are these expressions? This is the question with any libel defamation case. What is this allegedly defamatory material, these tweets and conversations that he's suing over? All right. Well, let's state again before we do that no allegations of sexual assault against Stephen Galloway have been proven in court or even resulted in charges being laid against him. And some of the things considered in this case very explicitly call him a rapist, but other instances were more complicated. 
So let's go through them. First, there's AB, of course, the main defendant who said over multiple instances, in person and online, that Galloway raped her. She later included these allegations as part of an art installation she showed at a gallery in the United States. The installation featured these giant, blown-up pages directly from the personal narrative that she had to write out as part of the UBC investigation. Um, The majority of pages were actually blacked out, leaving only certain phrases. So this is supposedly an artistic statement on the silencing of assault survivors. That art show is considered to be a form of speech and can go to trial. However, the verbal statements that she'd previously made against Galloway have been dismissed. That's really interesting. So saying, and I know that just speech between people can also be defamation in Canadian law, that stuff is not going to trial, but her art installation can go to trial? Yes, and a big part of that is because the judge ruled that it was obvious the art was a reference to Galloway. However, he wasn't actually named in it. Okay. There is Keith Millard and Annabel Lyon. They're both UBC professors, and they're the ones who led that meeting at the creative writing department where these allegations were discussed. So this is like two professors who are dealing with an allegation from one of their students against a fellow professor, and they have a meeting to discuss the allegations. And at that meeting, things are said that Stephen Galloway later says, okay, both of these professors are also guilty of defaming me. Yes, exactly. I think a big part of that was because when these professors brought the allegations into the rest of the department, they kind of did so in a way that suggested strongly that A.B. was telling the truth. They believed A.B. Yeah, I think they both strongly believed that this was a, a true allegation. And are they going to go to trial for defamation? These will not, actually, but that's kind of based on technicality because the statute of limitations applied here. Okay. What else you got? Then there's Chelsea Rooney. She was a student at UBC, and she allegedly spoke to other people and said things such as, and I quote, Stephen Galloway raped A.B., end quote. Seems direct enough. Pretty direct. This verbal statement was dismissed and won't go to trial. What? Yeah, it's difficult to understand some of these rulings. (laughs) All right, I guess uh, we got a bunch more to go through, so let's keep going. There's Glynis Kirkmeyer, who was an outspoken advocate for sexual assault victims on campus at this time. She tweeted that Walrus Magazine's piece said Galloway had an affair which we now know is what he calls raping slash sexually harassing a student. There was quite a bit of debate over the slash and what the slash meant, but this can go to trial. I have trouble following the judge's logic here on what can or can't. I'm I'm, I'm sure there are lengthy explanations in the ruling, but uh, there seems to be a lack of consistency to me. Yeah, there's um, an interesting tweet where Mandy Gray, she called Galloway a prof who sexually assaults a student. And another tweet where she goes, a dude who has sexually assaulted someone. These are also cleared to go to trial. But there's another tweet by Gray where she posted a photo of herself in front of this poster for AB's art show. And the tweet said it was a very important installation about campus sexual violence. So that will also go to trial. Yeah, I find this really confusing, to tell you the truth. Right. As an outside observer, I really don't understand why that one in particular. And... I want to note that when Galloway sued all of these people, most were relatively unknown students, and they didn't actually learn about the legal action until after the claim was shared online. So talking about Gray, here's how she described finding out she was being sued. I had no idea that this was happening, Uh, so I rushed to Twitter 
And I got the notice of civil claim, not from the courts, not from a lawyer giving me a courtesy copy, not from the National Post, but Jonathan Kay had posted it on Twitter. So um, that's how I learned that I was being sued. I was very confused. I was very distraught. I didn't know how a lawsuit could even be announced in a national newspaper without being asked for comment, without being served, or even like a courtesy copy the morning it was going to press. Sharice, I kind of get why she would be completely shocked by that. And I also get why people would still be confused and surprised by how this is playing out. So, Sharice, just to kind of like reiterate why this is confusing me so far, it's not out of any sense of like generalized injustice. I think I would get it if it was like the direct statements where they say Galloway is a rapist. Yes, that might be defamation. He deserves his chance to prove that at trial. And then people who are more generalized and just sort of commenting on it. I mean, this is sort of like a facet of when a lot of people discuss a case on Twitter, some people are just sort of making a generalized remark about the case and are actually careful not to make a specific accusation. I would understand this if that's where this got divided. These ones are possibly defamatory. Those other ones, let's not waste the court's time. But it doesn't seem like that's the criteria under which the judge made these decisions. And some of the more general stuff is going to trial and, and some of the really direct accusations aren't. Right. Something notable is that a lot of tweets with this hashtag UBC Accountable, which was kind of known to be the hashtag under which people who were talking about Galloway were using, it comes into play here because the judge uses that to suggest that that's almost a direct accusation of Galloway. I left the most unusual one for last, at least in my opinion. Teresa Smalik, a professor and art critic who wrote a review of AB's art show that I mentioned before. Jesse, she did not actually name Galloway or connect him to the show. She did mention AB's name, the Me Too movement, and some phrases from the art show. But this art review can now go to trial. So this woman shows up and reviews an art show and somehow finds herself getting sued and then facing trial in Canada for defaming the guy who the art show was about. Yes. That's weird. Sharice, you have been deep into this story. You have been reading this complicated uh, court ruling. Do you understand why some of these passed the test and others did not? I think I have a decent understanding of what happened here. Okay. So in BC, for something to be ruled as not being a slap, two things have to be established in court. First, that the claim of defamation has substantial merit and that the defendant has no valid defense. And two, the judge has to determine that the allegedly defamed person's interest in getting his day in court outweighs the public's interest to have free expression about them. So in this case, like, the Galloway story breaks and a lot of people weigh in on it on Twitter. And if you can determine that that's a topic of, like, legitimate public interest, that's the public interest that the judge is weighing against Stephen Galloway's right to have, like, hey, I've been defamed. You made this serious allegation about me and I, I demand my day in court. That's what the judge is, is, is trying to balance. Basically, yeah. And something that also comes into play is whether any silencing around sexual assault allegations might also affect the public interest. Right. So the public interest isn't just our interest to, like, gab about Stephen Galloway. It's like, are we allowed to have comments about sexual assault and sexual assault allegations. Yeah, all these things are supposed to come into play. But I talked to Hillary Young, who's a law professor at the University of New Brunswick and a slap suit expert. She explains it this way. The way the law actually works is that there's an initial question, which is, is this speech that's being sued over on a matter of public interest? 
then we get into the much more difficult question of uh, both the merits of the action. So if this were to proceed to a trial, would it be likely to succeed? That's a very hard question to answer at this stage, because again, the whole point is to do this without a trial, without all the evidence that you would want at a trial. And then finally, this balancing, which says, is the harm likely to be suffered by the person whose reputation at stake is that such that we should allow the case to go forward? You're trying to determine whether to end a defamation action without knowing the merits of the case. And so whenever you do that, you risk denying someone their ability to defend their reputations. And that's not something the courts will do readily. So, Sharice, like a lot of this gets very complicated. But in another way, this is almost like the simplest defamation case I could imagine. I mean, it seems pretty straightforward to me that if you call somebody a rapist, their reputation will be harmed. Okay, sure. But what if you have relatively few followers and not that many people read the tweet? I spoke to one of these defendants, Glynis Kirkmeyer. She was a sexual assault survivor advocate from UBC. And she told me that that's the kind of thing that she was actually asked about in a cross-examination. Here's what law professor Hillary Young had to say about that. The way the law works is that you would be responsible for any reputational harm that you caused. I mean, in practice, it tends not to be that specific, in part because it's really hard to know precisely what harm your particular retweet as opposed to someone else's retweet caused. I think the courts just tend not to be quite that nuanced about cause and effect when it comes to defamation law. But that's how it would work in theory, right? So I publish something and I'm responsible for the harm that I cause. So if I have 10 followers on Twitter, the damages against me should be quite small relative to someone who said exactly the same thing on Twitter, but who has a million followers. In this case, you have a number of people being sued, some of whom were just, you know, one more person saying similar things, does that affect people's impressions of the the plaintiff? Well, maybe not. But the way the test of defamation works, it doesn't always focus on that question. That's so weird. I mean, I get it, you know, with, with great power comes great, like, et cetera, et cetera. But it's like, strange to have laws that depend on how many Twitter followers you have or an application of a law. Like if I tweeted the exact same thing as somebody who only had a few followers, he might get a lawsuit against him thrown out as a slap and I might find myself on trial and then found guilty of defamation. And by that logic, then I don't know, like if Weird Al tweeted the same thing, then I guess he'd be super guilty and the damage would be that much greater because, you know, it's Weird Al. He's got 5 million followers. Yeah, that's how the court sees it. And from the Galloway side, He did suffer a lot of harm. As his lawyer says in documents, sexual assault is one of the most serious allegations you can make. His lawyer talks about his ruined reputation, the book deals he'll never get back, loss of income. Gallery's lawyer said, The attitude that just one person's involvement is not significant ignores the dynamic of a mob and the collective effect of many punches. The law of defamation rejects all these attitudes. It does sound like this is like a deliberate and specific attempt to put cancel culture on trial. Yeah, that's the sense I get. Okay, so when Galloway backed out of uh, the interview that he proposed that I do with him, he sent me a statement. I'll read from it here. I am not suing the defendants for their personal beliefs, for talking about sexual assault, or for advocating for legitimate victims of sexual assault. 
In each instance, the defendants made factual statements which carry the meaning that I committed rape. Justice Adair's ruling also affirms this. I did not sexually assault A.B., and at trial, I will prove it. While it requires no imagination to see how a false accusation of violent rape could destroy a person's entire life, as well as the lives of those around them, it's clear that confronting even the possibility that this is what has happened to me is something that a great many people simply refuse to do. False allegations are rare, but they do happen. This is what they look like. Sharice, I think it's true that false accusations of violent rape could destroy a person's reputation, perhaps even their life, but I also know that other things had an impact on Galloway's reputation. The Boyd report found that a sexual harassment allegation against him was credible. We learned through the reporting of other journalists that Galloway had this history of alleged inappropriate conduct with students. He was said to have frequently gone drinking with his students and that there was this incident, this alleged bullying of a male student who he seems to have threatened, suggesting that he was going to like harm the guy's reputation in the Canadian literary community as payback for some sort of a perceived slight. There was this other student who he allegedly slapped in front of other students. And there are conflicting reports as to whether this was a joke or perhaps a joke that went too far. I don't know. We don't know if any of these allegations are true. But add it all up, and there is reason to believe that Galloway's reputation might have already suffered. Yeah, exactly. And this is why it's complicated. And this is why lawyer Hillary Young kind of mentions the problems with uh, defamation, where it's hard to prove specific harm. Normally, a defamation trial might get to the stage where the defendant can say, I didn't harm your reputation because you had no good reputation to lose. Mm -hmm. But in this case, it was the rape allegations that prompted all of that other information to come out. And of course, there are different degrees of bad reputations. A reputation as maybe a professor is different than a reputation as a rapist. Fair point. Finally, I want to talk about what the court had to say about this issue of the public interest. A big aspect of this case is it in the public interest for people to be able to talk about sexual assault on social media or elsewhere. Broadly, I think people agree that it is. Mm -hmm. So this lawsuit pits that public interest against Galloway's private interest, the effect of these expressions on his life and livelihood. So ultimately, Justice Elaine Adair ruled that the public interest for Galloway having his day in court was strong. Adair also rejected this idea. Quote, I reject the proposition that courts as a traditional social institution remain hostile to women's accounts of violence, compelling women to turn to Twitter. A lack of faith in the legal system does not inspire confidence in someone tendered to the court as an impartial expert whose role is to assist the court. Moreover, the lawlessness of Twitter is not necessarily a friendly place. A.B. and Mr. Galloway, too, can attest to that. A key part of her argument is that many of the tweets, even those that didn't name Galloway, could not be defended as fair comment because the context under which they were published made it clear that they were about him and that they could be interpreted as factual statements. Teresa Smalek's art review, which does not name Galloway, did not pass because of these reasons. And of course, some people disagreed with Adair's ruling. Glynis Kirkmeyer, in particular, is critical of what arguments and evidence Adair allowed. She said that she was only allowed to submit a very limited amount of evidence and that she had no power to argue there should be more. 
you know, as a defendant, I'm not entitled to go off on facts that I think are relevant, but it's really up to the court with what they think is relevant. And what are you going to do? I mean, you can't force your way in there. They've got absolute power to decide what to hear and what not to. Adair was very deferential to the perception that Galloway has a right to go to the public to clear his reputation. Well, you know, it actually is harmful to someone's reputation to be a rape victim too, because people hate rape victims and will say, oh, you know, so-and-so is a liar. So-and-so is ruining someone's life over something that didn't matter. The judge also discovered the use of Twitter as a forum in which to discuss these kinds of cases. Wait, what? Yeah, she says, regrettably, Twitter is a source of misery to many. And there is no public interest in promoting the careless or reckless use of Twitter. You know, Sharice, I've heard that kind of talk for years now where people gesture towards something being disreputable or trashy, lawless, because of where it was said, not what was said. You know, like, oh, like, where did you read that? Did you read that on a blog? You know, like, is that where you're getting your information from? You're getting your information from Twitter? And it always strikes me as, as a cheap way to avoid dealing with the content. And I'm not aware of the courts taking a position in the past on one medium or one forum being higher or lower than another. Given that Twitter is literally the space in which movements like Me Too kind of happened and got sparked off and found their momentum, that kind of position from the court does seem to have some chill potential. Yeah. So I actually spoke with David Watherspoon, who's the counsel for AB, and he did tell me that the ruling has already had negative impacts for people who work with sexual assault survivors, and of course, for the survivors themselves. Since the judgment came out, I have been approached by several people, all women, who have come forward to tell me about their experiences and their disappointment with the judicial system. One is a counselor um, who had her own incident of sexual assault uh, reporting it. And now she doesn't counsel women to go to the police or to report. Because of this decision, she's found it um, demoralizing and it, uh, she sees it as a step backwards. That was my concern when I first read the judgment. And this is um, an example of where it's having that real life effect, which is hugely disappointing. And as Glynis Kirkmeyer agrees, at least she told me that the potential chill effect of this lawsuit was not given enough weight by the court and that some of the people who spoke up for IB have already decided that they better just shut up. Some are, you know, no longer on Twitter. Some are no longer publishing in academic spaces uh, as they had before. Their behavior has changed. The silencing tactic does work. And it doesn't need a final decision from the court to work. It worked right away. Jesse, so one thing worth pointing out is that all this is very specific to Canada. Because in the U.S., in a defamation case, the person claiming to be defamed has to prove the statement to be false and that there was malice, rather than the other way around. Right. So if this were happening in the States, Stephen Galloway would essentially be putting himself on trial. He would have to prove that he is not a rapist in order to prove that comments suggesting that he might be were defamatory. Right. But if this matter goes to trial, then the burden of proof is on the defendants. They have to prove that what they said is defensible, rather than Galloway having to prove that it was false. I think what Alta is getting at is that defamation cases in our society have a particular power 
outside of just stifling a single person. Basically, there is more legal liability for tweeting about a Me Too case in Canada than doing that in the U.S. Here's Gwyneth Kirkmeyer again. I don't live in Canada, and I don't think I ever would. This isn't a society that I want to be part of. I think it treats people in a way that is against the values that you purport to have on human rights. And it's that kind of hypocrisy uh, is distasteful to me. So, you know, no love lost. I am spending tens of thousands of dollars of my own money to defend it on principle. And here again is law professor Hillary Young about why this type of trial might not be well suited to a case with sexual assault allegations. I think these allegations of sexual assault are a really good example of where these laws probably work less well. I think it's probably because the allegations are so serious. So where I think the allegations are so serious, you're probably just less likely to have an anti-slap motion succeed. So there are all sorts of ways in which I think reform is needed. You know, I think one that would help in cases like this is to take a much more contextual approach. It doesn't require changing the law. It just means you look at a communication, whether it be an art exhibit or a tweet, and say, did that actually affect someone's reputation? And if it didn't, then it shouldn't be subject to defamation law. No, it's not technically the test of defamation, but that's what defamation cares about. And that's what we should care about. Okay, wait a second. Sharice, false accusations of sexual assault do happen. They're very rare. And, and I have no idea if the allegations against Stephen Galloway are among them, but like they do happen. If the idea here is, is that when that happens, when an innocent person is accused of sexual assault and everyone on Twitter is calling them a rapist, they shouldn't be able to do anything about it. They shouldn't be able to sue for defamation. And the reason why they shouldn't be able to sue is because that might prevent other victims of real allegations from coming forward. Like they should just take one for, for society, take one for the team and, and suffer whatever reputational damage. I mean, rape is a very serious crime. It can destroy someone's reputation. And if it's a false accusation, I mean, that just doesn't sound right that somebody should just like go down for the greater good. Right. I mean, I agree with you. And Galloway, in another follow-up email to me, called these slap motions meritless, and he claimed that they have actually delayed him having the opportunity to clear his name for almost three years. But I don't know what the alternative is here. Because ultimately, I think that it's important to remember that this whole practice of people calling out other folks for sexual assault on Twitter happens in many cases because the other options to seek justice are so terrible. The formal recourses, the cops, the schools, the courts, they've all failed pretty terribly to deal with sexual assault. And now with this case, there's a good chance the appeal won't be successful and Galloway might win again. And maybe he should, and maybe he shouldn't. But none of that does anything to solve the original problem. And a court ruling against women for talking about it on Twitter or in an art project could scare other women from even talking about being assaulted. The bottom line is... We're still in a culture where women are afraid to come forward about sexual assault. That is your Canada Land show. You can email me. I'm at jesse at canadaland.com. I read everything you send me. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is at canadaland.com. 
That is where you can sign up for our weekly newsletter, which will fill you in on everything Candleland publishes every week, in case you missed anything. And our newsletter will also change your mind about puns. They can be good. This episode was reported by Cherie Sutrin, with production help from Jonathan Goldsby and Tristan Capicione, our audio editor and technical producer. Our senior producer is Sarah Larniuk. Kieran Oudshorn is our managing editor. Our theme music is by So Called. Syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it. Hey, it's Jesse. Listen, some of you listen to The Backbench and some of you don't. Uh, I want to speak to those of you who don't. Our politics show, The Backbench, hosted by Fatma Sayed, has moved to a weekly schedule because it's just that good. It's the best politics podcast in Canada. I think it's the best politics show in Canada. This has been something that we've been trying to do since we began, which is talk about politics differently on the Canada Land Network. And I think that we finally have got it sorted out. The backbench is exactly what I've always wanted in a Canadian politics show. We're not hearing from the usual suspects. We're hearing about politics from a lot of different voices from all over the country, from a lot of different perspectives. But like what they really are are smart and funny people talking about politics. And the perspective that Fatima has and that her panelists have are that politics is not a game. It's not something for people who happen to work in that industry or just like get some weird fetishistic kick out of figuring out if it's going to be Pierre Polyever or the other, you know, like it's because it matters. That's why you got to talk about politics is because politics has to do with policy. It has to do with our lives and they make those connections every time and you're getting a high level conversation, but it's also just like hanging out with friends who just happen to know a ton of stuff about politics. As I said, the show has moved to a weekly schedule and you're going to get the panel discussions, but you're also going to get like what I learned is Fatima is an excellent interviewer. She did this interview that many of you heard with a People's Party of Canada voter. That was just terrific. And I I thought, man, I want to hear her interview a lot more people. Recently, she interviewed Bob Ray. She's going to be interviewing everybody from people who were almost prime minister to just regular voters to kind of like get a better sense of what politics is actually about and how it actually impacts people. So if you listen to the backbench, you know that what I say is true. And if you don't, I'm off this week. I'm off shortcuts. I'm out of town. I'm going to play you this week's episode of the backbench. I counted after I heard this episode, the number of things I learned. And it was like eight. There were eight things that I didn't know before listening to this episode that I knew afterwards, but I had a good time learning it. Here's the backbench. Check it out. We all know that Canada is not a nuclear power, it is not a military power, we're a middle-sized power, and what we're good at is convening. I believe that we have uh, exhausted inventory from the Canadian Armed Forces. I am hopeful that the paradigm shift in energy policy that we are seeing today will cause a rethink. You know what you need to liquefy natural gas? Cold. You know what we have in Canada? Lots of cold. In fact, it is our most abundant natural resource if you look out the window. 
Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics and teenage Patrick Brown's hair. Today, the ban on Russian oil continues to reverberate in Canadian politics. But can Canada solve the world's energy crisis? And COVID has broken a lot of our assumptions about government spending. How will that affect the upcoming budget? We're getting one in two weeks, so let's talk about it. Joining me this week from Calgary, where the premier is desperately clinging to his job, Jason Markasov, contributor at McLean's. Hello. I am desperately clinging to my cup of coffee this morning. Hello. <laughs> In Vancouver, where gas broke $2 per liter, Caroline Elliott, freelance writer and PhD candidate at Simon Fraser University. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. And from Ottawa, where air horns are officially legal now, Murad Hamadi, reporter at The Logic. Wait, what? Let's get into it. (laughs) So things are still bad. There is the ongoing pandemic, a war, and gas prices have now reached record highs. But Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, ever the optimist, has identified an opportunity for Canada. Uh, For too long, there's been a policy setting uh, that has also sought to impede the construction of energy infrastructure that has limited our ability to compete with and displace energy that comes from unstable sources. Gas prices were going up in Canada even before Russia invaded Ukraine. Now, forgive me for sounding like my high school economics teacher, but it's your basic supply and demand problem. The world economy is waking up from two years of COVID lockdowns and using more oil and gas. We're starting to drive back to work. The oil-guzzling cruise industry and airlines are making a comeback. Oil demand is really, really high, but oil production isn't catching up as quickly. It's just reaching pre-pandemic levels. And now, with Canada banning crude oil imports from Russia, as well as Western oil companies leaving the country, the price of oil and gas has skyrocketed. And I guess, side note, the largest oil and gas companies made a combined $174 billion in profits in the last nine months because of these insane prices. With ripple effects on everything from transportation to food prices, the general public can't escape from the messy, uncomfortable questions around oil production, global politics, and the future of energy. Enter Jason Kenney, a man always ready for an opportunity to promote Canadian oil, touting, quote, energy security, a rebrand of the ethical oil debate of years past. And he's not alone. Over in Newfoundland and Labrador, Premier Andrew Fury is urging the federal government to greenlight the controversial Bay du Nord deep sea drilling project to increase Canada's oil production. So, Jason, walk us through this. What does Jason Kenney think Canada can do here? Jason Kenney thinks exactly what he's thought, and people of his ilk have uh, thought for years. The major difference is that now there's more of an audience for it. Even citing this, this whole ethical oil argument has been around for a long time. It was popularized by uh, everyone's dear friend of uh, the Canadian discourse, Ezra Levant. The big argument is that we should support Canadian oil because we're a democratic, stable country, and we shouldn't buy oil from some of the other national sources of it, um, which are not good countries or despotic countries or, you know, dictatorships. Saudi Arabia, we know what they do. Venezuela, other Mideast um, dictatorships, um, and Russia, of course, has been a whipping post for, uh, for conservatives and uh, others for a long time. 
nobody was until recently was really arguing that we should be shipping all of our oil to Europe to wean them off of Russian oil. That was a not a very big argument. Mm-hmm. Europe is has been generally fine getting Russian oil. They don't love Russia, but uh, it's a neighbor. It's close, and their supply of oil and more importantly natural gas has been very reliable. Of course, this was all before the Ukraine invasion. Mm-hmm. And now everybody is kind of nodding along with what Jason Kenney is saying, uh, that, yeah, it's a bad thing to get oil from Russia because Russia is terrible. It's a terrible thing to get natural gas from Russia. So this slots very easily into the argument that Kenney and Levant and uh, a lot of people in the oil patches and federal conservatives have been making for a long time that more Canadian oil is not only good and responsible for our economy, it's also good for energy security. Eventually, for a lot of people, it starts to uh, supplant uh, their thoughts about the urgency of climate change. So just for today, let's entertain Kenny seriously. Can we even do this? Caroline, Federal Environment Minister Stephen Guibault told the National Observer that it's not going to happen. He says fighting climate change remains a priority. And given that stance from the federal government, is it actually possible for anything to change here, for us to, you know, supply the world with Canadian oil? Well, I think there's, I guess, different answers for the short term than there are for the long term when it comes to that question. I do think that when we're talking about getting Canadian products to market, it's less, I think, about getting Canadian oil to Europe than it is about replacing Russian oil in the United States. And the United States was importing something around 700,000 barrels per day of Russian oil last year, and they've banned that. Now they're going hat in hand to places like Venezuela, where, as you know, they've been accused of atrocities and crimes against humanity by the UN Human Rights Council, among many other horrible things that happen there. And I think the argument is, why go to Venezuela if your next door neighbor who shares many of the same values, commitment to democracy, strict environmental regulations, labor codes, all those kinds of things, uh, why not go there? And so I think Jason Kenney's uh, criticism is around the lack of readiness or amenability to that idea at the federal level. Canada and Venezuela have two of the world's three largest oil reserves. They're both oil sands extraction methods for the most part. The difference is Venezuela is able to get its product to market. I think they move something like 900,000 barrels per day. Keystone Pipeline, in contrast, in Canada would have moved something like 830,000 barrels per day. It would actually replace the amount that, I mean, if we were actually producing that much, it would replace the amount and get that to the U.S. refineries on the Gulf Coast that would have been otherwise coming from Russia. So I do get the argument, and I actually find it compelling. This money is literally filling Putin's ability to develop nuclear arms, to wage his war in Ukraine. Murad, jump in here. I know this week the International Energy Agency is hosting a meeting of energy ministers in Paris, and Natural Resource Minister Jonathan Wilkinson expects to know how much Canada can ship to Europe by then. What capacity do we have to actually provide some relief in this space, either domestically or internationally? Well, I think, you know, the prime minister was asked about this at some point last week and sort of said, you know, we don't necessarily have the facilities to do it. And the the sort of liquefying the national gas to get it on the tankers to get it across the ocean is part of the problem. It's not just uh, energy, right? Like Russia and Ukraine export it. I think the technical term is shit done of wheat to the world that feeds like a whole bunch of different countries. You know, Carolyn was saying like, there's a difference between the short term and the long term. And there's an argument that by sort of enabling the presence of the Russian energy sector in the global supply of this stuff for years by not displacing it, 
you know, we've been filling Putin's coffers. I note that, you know, when Boris Johnson this week needed somewhere to go to find more energy supply, he went to the UAE and to Saudi Arabia, which, by the way, is waging its own war currently in Yemen, and we are filling its coffers by buying its oil. But the thing is, that's how global economies work. Like, the sort of uh, economics of Saudi oil are better than the economics of Canadian oil, as I understand it, or have historically been, they can support a lower price. Decades of foreign policy have helped uh, build that. And we aren't so concerned about Saudi oil right now, are we? Because there's a sort of handy target in the Russians. Uh, And I think there's a version of this fight for like every single commodity. So one I wanted to bring up, uh, and this might be a little bit of a torturous example, so I apologize, is palladium which is a metal that Russia exports something like 30% of the world's palladium. And a shortage of global palladium, even before the crisis, was leading to people stealing catalytic converters from cars. So like thieves in North America are stealing the things that clean the exhaust of cars and like reselling the metal in them. Uh, So it was already a global shortage and now Russia's come onto the market, you know. I don't see necessarily the same arguments happening about palladium or cobalt-60, which is a nuclear material that is used in sterilization that Russia produces a ton of, which is all to say like, you know, we started out this by asking how much is this about sort of domestic political mileage to use a gas pun versus sort of the reality of the global geopolitical situation. The answer is probably a little bit of both. As the Prairie panelist here, I just want to clarify one thing regarding the measurements that uh, Bernard talked about. There are four pecks to a bushel and 150 million bushels to a (laughs) ton. Thank you. I do want to talk about the projects that could help here, you know, the long-term solutions to this conversation. I mean, last week we learned that the cost of the Trans Mountain Pipeline has tripled. It's now expected to cost $21.4 billion to build because of cost overruns and construction delays, and taxpayers are on the hook for that. So that's a big problem that we need to solve before we even entertain the idea of becoming the world energy supplier. And then on the Keystone XL side of things, this was a pipeline that, if people will remember, Joe Biden canceled when he came to office. But Republicans actually introduced a bill in Congress called the American Energy Independence from Russia Act that has a provision that would reauthorize the Keystone XL and remove the requirement for a presidential permit. Now, this bill only has a 30 percent chance of being passed through, according to reporting And I know that Premier Kenny and Alberta are also trying to take it over. So, Caroline, when we're talking about this, there are physical things we could do, right? But it would probably be years or decades down the line. How should we be seriously considering this if we are going to? With something like uh, Keystone, I think I just read recently that TC Energy, who's the private sector proponent of that project, has no intention of restarting this project. And I think that may have something to do with, and this is total speculation, but it may have something to do with what I perceive as a fairly hostile environment to this sort of project in the Canadian context and even in the U.S. with the Democrats not exactly, I think, wanting to jump on board restarting a project that they just cancelled. It's terrible optics. But at the same time, we saw, I mean, when it comes to supplying the rest of the world, there was Energy East, there was Enbridge, there's other proposed projects to get Canadian product to market that have also been cancelled. So Canada essentially 
cannot get their product to Tidewater on the east or west coast. And it has trouble getting something built down to the United States as well. So I think there's a whole bunch of things in the way of, of these things actually coming to fruition. And then, of course, there is the natural gas side, which I mentioned earlier. Of course, it's not just oil that provides various kinds of energy. There is natural gas as well. That's the big one that we saw um, causing issues in in Germany with the cancellation of the Nord Stream 2 project. Uh, And there's talk about whether or not Canada can supply some of that product as well. And again, it's a difficult situation. There are facilities. uh, LNG Canada is technically under construction, and we're all very familiar with the coastal gas link pipeline. So you can see, I mean, of course, with the Wet'suwet'en situation uh, in northern British Columbia, there's all kinds of considerations and factors that go into getting projects built or not. And many of them are, if you're an investor in that industry, are things that send messages that perhaps you don't want to spend your money there in Canada to get those products to market. You'd rather spend it elsewhere because they have easier regulatory environments. They don't have uh, the same Indigenous consultation and accommodation requirements. But I do think Canada should absolutely be playing a role in securing that long-term supply to the world in terms of natural gas and oil. Because if we don't, then it leads us to a situation where you have basically the world funding tyrants like Putin, like Maduro, like whoever you want to name, Iran. And that means that your hands are tied when it comes to dealing with bad actions by these nations as well. And we're seeing that when we saw the, what was it, seven out of the nine largest banks out of Russia being pulled from the SWIFT system. Well, why weren't uh, two of them pulled? Because they facilitated the energy transactions. And the very worst part is it pushes prices up because of supply and demand, which is what you talked about in the very beginning of this conversation, which in turn actually enriches the people who were developing the products in the first place. So Putin right now is benefiting. I mean, he's not benefiting in in the grand scheme of things, obviously with all the sanctions, but he is benefiting from higher oil prices because he's getting more money for his product. The other long-term path forward is a greener world economy. And if Canada is going to entertain the idea of boosting, you know, the world's energy supply, where does that leave us with our climate goals? We've committed to net zero emissions by 2050, reducing our greenhouse gas emissions by at least 40 percent relative to 2005 by 2030. You know, we just had an IPCC report that urged us in no uncertain terms to keep increasing the pace and make rapid deep cuts in greenhouse gas emissions, any increase in our energy production is going to thwart all of that, right? This is where we're really in treading in tricky territory, because at the same time, we're talking about short-term issues and long-term issues. It takes time to get anything moving, which is why you're also hearing the International Energy Agency, and I'm guessing when the energy minister is convened, you'll hear more about this, um, is do what we've done in the past, especially in the 70s when there was a big um, oil crisis, and that is reduce reliance. I mean, we can reduce reliance by reducing demand. And so you've seen the International Energy Agency calling for city uh, congestion fees to reduce demand, lower speeds to reduce demand. Um, This is all flashbacks to the 70s, back when the U.S. actually went permanently to daylight saving time, to use another uh, contemporary debate, to uh, lower uh, reliance on lights and electricity and other energy use. That is actually an immediate short-term thing that uh, people and societies can do to lower the demand and lower the money being spent to Russia right away uh, in a way that's much faster than uh, ramping up cane production, building pipelines. Of course, this is going to fit into yet another contemporary problem, which is we're just coming out of the situation with COVID where people don't like being told what to do with their lives and how to operate their cars and where to go and what to do and how to act and how fast to drive. So 
while it makes sense in these situations for a president like Biden and tr- people like Trudeau and Boris Johnson to uh, say those things, I don't know if the political climate's going to be there. So we talk about, you know, what are our long-term interests? There is a long-term interest, of course, to uh, curb oil use overall for climate change. Uh, there is a long-term interest in reducing the amount of money going to bad actors in the world, on the world stage, like Saudi Arabia, like Russia. And we have to figure out how to balance all those. And one certain way is to reduce uh, usage. But of course, that only, not only hits the resistance of don't tread on me, man, but also, you know, it affects people's lives. People can't just stop driving um, because gas price is too high. We have set up our whole lives around driving, uh, home heating, so we cannot just shut off things despite what the idealists want us to do. Every solution to this is going to take a while in realist terms. To look ahead, um, Murad, you're in Ottawa. You're watching all the politicians talk about this and navigate this. What do Canadians across the country need to know about how this conversation is unfolding in Parliament Hill and and maybe what we should be looking out for or holding their feet to the fire for? I think you're going to see it, you know, play out in the House, which is back this week, for sure. I don't know that you're necessarily going to see it play out any different than Conservatives sort of repeating their lines about the Trudeau government stifling the energy sector or trying to kill it or whatever rhetoric they're using in any given week and the sort of Trudeau government insisting that they, you know, have climate ambitions and they're not really actually getting in the way of anything, so stop talking about it. The sort of regulatory and policy landscape has been set, and the one thing that you sort of can always count on in Ottawa is once the moment passes, the policy continues to chug along the same. Okay, on that note, let's adjourn. That's the backbench. We're still weekly. So next week, we'll have an in-depth discussion with someone who is impacting or being impacted by Canadian politics. If you have questions, concerns, rants for us, please email backbench at candleland.com. We're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Fatma Sayed. You can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayed, and you can find my work on the Narwhal. Murad, where can people follow your analysis as we get closer to budget day? My budget story will be at thelogic.co and I'm on Twitter at M-U-R-A-D-H-E-M. Caroline, thank you for giving us the idea for the energy security conversation. Where can people follow you to learn more? Uh, They can read me as a contributor at thehub.ca and they can find me on Twitter at NorthVanCaroline. That's at NVanCaroline. And Jason, where can people follow you to get more banned words from Canadian politics? I am at Marcusoff on the Twitter machine. This episode was produced by Kevin Sexton with additional production by Tristan Capacione and Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is Kieran Outshorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening and see you next week. 